I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Hey, hello, gentlemen. Hi, Jesse. Hello, J-Dub. How are you guys? Pretty good. I'm feeling very prepared for this podcast. I've been thinking oh. about it. I formed the intention to make a podcast with you. <laughs> oh, you must have listened to last week's episode. I did, and I internalized every word. Previously <laughs> on Liturgy Guys. <laughs> bum, bum. <laughs> oh, man. And we were talking about internal disposition and how you prepare for Mass and have vesting prayers. Now we are ready to begin. Let us begin. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of uh, going through the Mass? What are we looking at? Well, the reason we're doing this step by step by step is because there are a couple of ways to read Pope Francis's document about the extraordinary form, you know, Traditionis Custodis. And there's the one way to read it is all the things we can't do. We're taking the sentence where he said, I ask you to be vigilant in ensuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican II without, Chris, the eccentricities that can easily degenerate into abuses, right? So I think we have to do even more than that. It's not just don't have eccentricities. That's the minimum. It's like don't drive into other people's cars. That's the minimum. But if you really want to have the thrill of driving along a windy road in the country with your eight-cylinder turbo, well, you better have be ready, prepared to do that. So we are going to do more than eccentricities. We're going to dive deep into the meaning of things, which is what we've been doing. And now we're ready to start, or at least to prepare for Mass, eh, Chris? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, if um, if you've listened to the other podcasts, and I think you listen to these once in a while, don't you, uh, Je- um, Dennis? I listen to them all three or four oh, times. Three or four times. I barely want to record them, so you know I don't listen. <laughs> now you're, you're becoming Chris, and Chris is all no, excited. No, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I love it. <laughs> so if you've listened to the earlier podcasts, we've been preparing for Mass with, because we we everybody knows that you can't just begin. You have to have a beautiful church. You have to have people properly disposed. You have to have beautiful vestments. Um, you have to have the full panoply. Is that a word? That is a word. Good word, Chris. Okay. Of uh, ministers. Uh, and, you know, to really, you know, do what the what Pope Francis says in that letter, I mean, it takes a lot of this stuff before Mass begins. So, But now we're going to look at, uh, in the Roman Missal, uh, in the section called the Order of Mass, uh, we're going to begin with number one. And number maybe one, back up one. just a little bit about uh, uh, what is a Roman Missal. Yeah. So um, the, uh, the se- they say, you know, the people are smart about this, that in the uh, early days, the church's liturgical books were all sort of divvied up among ministers, right? So if you were, um, if you were a reader, you'd have a lectionary. Uh, if you were a cantor, you'd have, what would they call that, Dennis? An antiphonary or something like that? Yeah, antiphonale, yeah. Okay. Uh, if you were a priest, you'd have a sacramentary. And every kind of principal uh, liturgical minister would have have his own book. Well, eventually, and for a variety of reasons, these all got put into one book. Uh, and this is called the Roman Missal. And so even today, like if you 
You know, the lectionary for mass exists in four volumes, but if you open up the cover to any of those, it will say the Roman Missal, the lectionary. And so if you look in a Roman Missal, like a 1962 Roman Missal or something like that, it has all the readings and all the antiphons and all the priest prayers all in one book. Okay. Well, that's what uh, that's what a Roman Missal is. And so the Missal that we want to kind of get back into and look at according to tradition is uh, the the Roman Missal that was uh, reformed uh, after the mind of the Second Vatican Council by Paul VI and then John Paul II. Uh, so that's that big 1,500-page book that is uh, up on the altar. Remember when Cardinal Lorenzi was going around introducing it, he said, it is a very heavy book. You need a good breakfast to carry it around. <laughs> and he wasn't kidding. It's a big old book. <laughs> In fact, you might know is they made what's called, uh, what is it called? I've got it now. Uh, it's called uh, excerpts of the Roman Missal that just has the prayers that the priest would use at the chair, right? So the server would have this littler book that he could use at the chair and it wouldn't have to like Eucharistic prayers and other things oh, yeah. like that that would be used on the altar. In case a little five-year-old boy can't carry yeah, that big old right. book. That's right. So anyway, so you got this uh, Roman Missal and if you open it up, uh, you have a number of things at the beginning. You have three principal documents at the beginning. Oh, this would be a good quiz, quiz question. Ooh, I know it? how you like quizzes, uh, Jesse. What are the three documents uh, that uh, come at the beginning of the Roman Missal? Do you care to hazard a guess? The general instruction. Okay, that's the first one. Yes. The specific instruction. <laughs> the second one is the... Uh, uh, Some kind of decree, right? Well, the decrees would come before that, actually. Okay. But the second one, is, or the second principle one, is the uh, general norms on the universal Rome, or this is the universal norms on the general Roman calendar. Okay, so that'd be the second one. Or actually, no, I got that wrong. That's the third one. The second one is uh, that document called uh, "Norms for the Distribution and Reception of Holy Communion under Both Kinds in the Dioceses of the United States of America." So those are the three documents you'd find at the beginning: the germ, the norms on Holy Communion and the norms on the calendar, all right? So um, actually, just as a little aside then, so the calendar belongs, it's a missile document. It's not like a code of canon law document or something like that. So if you're using two different missiles, part of that package deal is that you use the calendar that goes with that missile. The calendar doesn't exist in some other place, right? So if you celebrate 62 missile, you use that calendar. Anyway, okay, and then you have uh, the text of the Missal, and the first big section of the Missal is called the proper of seasons or the proper of time, right? So that goes, has the, the text from Advent, Christmas, Lent, Triduum, Easter, Ordinary Time, and then the Solemnities of the Lord at the end of uh, Ordinary Time. Then you have what's called the Order of Mass, and that's going to be for us sort of the script as we walk through this. So this is you know, every mass begins, there's a tab on it. You go to number one of the order of mass, and that's where every mass begins. And in Latin, that's called the Ordo Mise, correct? So when we yeah. talk about the Novus Ordo Mass, we're talking about the new mm. order of mass. Okay. People get a little worked up sometimes because, the, you know, the Freemasons had that phrase, Novus Ordo, Seclorum, New World Order. This was the new order of mass. So uh, it's just a mere coincidence that not a hmm. Freemasonic plot, mm, at least. That's what that's I'm choosing what to believe. Say. Sure, yes. <laughs> sure. Okay. And then after that, you've got uh, a section after the order of mass, generally about the um, 
uh, proper of saints, and you have common texts, uh, and then you have ritual masses and masses for various needs and occasions. And we saw last time some appendices. So it's this great big collection of texts. But the one we're interested in principally uh, as, as we go through this is the order of mass. And then we'll be making reference back to the general instruction, uh, at the same time. And again, that's, uh, you know, I think it, it's, imp it's important, uh, that we do that because, you know, I think a lot of people, um, you know, whether you're, you know, in, in the nave or even a priest, I mean, it, it, after a while, you just kind of lose sight of some of what actually what some of the, the rubrics might say, you know, and what some of the uh, options might be. So this would be good to get back into that uh, section. Now, I mentioned mm. rubrics before. Uh, yes. What's a, what's a rubric? What do we mean by that? That's a little instruction in between the actual text. They're not to be read, but they tell you what to do. But they are read. Well, they're read, but not read out loud, I mass. yeah. They're not proclaimed. Let's put it that way. R-E-D, not R-E-A-D. Oh, I see. They're R-E-D and R-E-A-D. Jesse, I made a joke there. Read the red, say the black, right? Okay. Editor's laugh track. <laughs> do the red. Uh, yeah, yeah, do the red, say the say black. Say the black. Yeah, so the red text yeah, from Rubert, uh, like rubies, is uh, they're they're – I, we've said before they're like a treasure that you know because the 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 treasure that they help to reveal is is Christ Himself. If you do them, but if you don't follow the rubber, the rubrics, the instructions, it's kind of like um, speaking of mass analogies, not Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but you know when your kids do uh, like color by number or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, number three, if it says uh, it's blue, it's got to be blue. And if you color it green, the picture's not going to be, you know, yeah. discernible. That's a good analogy, Chris. I like this. If you don't follow the, 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 the mass is a work of art. And if you Liturgy don't, by the numbers. If you don't, in, in some ways, yeah, you got to do what the numbers say. You got to do what the red text says. Otherwise, the, the celebration looks less and less like Christ and more and more like the one who's, uh, you know, warping uh, yeah. the rubrics. And we don't want the liturgy to look like anybody but Jesus. Yeah, we don't want to give Jesus a green face. It's that simple. It's that simple. Yeah. Now, clarify this for me, Chris. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about now are the rubrics that are in between the actual text that the priest reads when he says Mass. Now, there's a general instruction for the Roman Missal kind of follows the same plan, doesn't it? Except it's not the same texts that are actually in the rites themselves. Correct? That's correct. Uh, although you sometimes um, it supplies a little bit more information, you, you kind of have to read them in concert with each other. So, for example, the germ would say it was real confusing. And you might remember this, that the, before the third edition of the Roman Missal came out, they released the general instruction. Okay, This is before anybody had a missal except in Latin. And just the, the, with a thought being this would help uh, prepare priest, uh, they could at least be looking at the general instruction uh, for 10 years before the, the missile came out. But it was unclear from the general instruction about when the people were to stand at the Orate Fratres, the Pray Brethren. And so uh, people started to stand, um, what, uh, before the priest said Pray Brethren, right? But it wasn't until the order of mass, the rubric in the order of mass, uh, made it clear that the priest says, Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And then the rubric says, the people rise and reply, mm -hmm. may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. And so 
um, that's an example, Dennis, to, you know, to help answer that question is no, they're not identical, but they're very much complementary. You know, the, and in, in, in a lot of ways, the, the rubrics and the order of mass are kind of abbreviations and shorthand of the fuller description from the general instruction. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway. And it tells you what to do. Now you do this, but the, yeah. gen, the general instruction will give you more context and more sort yeah. of philosophy behind it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So should we, should we start? Number one. Number one. Number, number one. one. Hold on. Let me start recording. <laughs> that was all just a precursor, right? Uh, yes, the joke never gets old. All right, except I know, when it number does. one. All right, so uh, Dennis, do you have a uh, uh, order of mass number one? Of course I do, Chris. I am prepared. Let's uh, lay it on us. When the people are gathered, the priest approaches the altar with the ministers while the entrance chant is sung. Do you want that much? Or you want yeah, more? Yeah, go all the way to uh, the people reply, Amen. Okay. When he has arrived at the altar, after making a profound bow with the ministers, the priest venerates the altar with a kiss and, if appropriate, incenses the cross and the altar. Then, with the ministers, he goes to the chair. When the entrance chant is concluded, the priest and the faithful standing sign themselves with the sign of the cross, while the priest, facing the people, says, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and the people reply, Amen. Amen. Okay. So, for those of you— How come it doesn't say they say the entrance hymn? Instead of the entrance ah, chant. See, now this is what we're going to do, oh. Jesse. So now the priest has this rubric right before his very eyes. Uh, but almost everybody in the church just sees him reading out of a big book, if in fact the book is even there. So what we want to do is drill down a little bit on about this rubric, right? And find out a little bit what's its history, what's it trying to convey, how do you actually follow it in a way that's beautiful and conveys not Father Bill, but Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, uh, and things like that. So we're just going to do a little bit of a commentary on this uh, in the podcast that are ahead. And I'm going to be the general instruction color commentator, and you're going to be the missile <laughs> color commentator. And together, we will be so colorful. Okay. And I'll be the sideline reporter. Well, or you could give us the uh, uh, the view from the pew, Jesse. This is uh, you <laughs> can give us what you experience uh, when you when you go to mass. Is that going to be our next podcast, Joe? A view from the view pew. From the pew. Yes. You've always been sitting in a pew, haven't you, Jesse? Well, you know the old <laughs> joke, right? Which he who farts in mass sits in own pew. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> All right. You never heard that, Dennis? I never have. I haven't either. I've experienced it when I've been in mass with you, except it wasn't my own pew. <laughs> and those wooden pews, they reverberate, oh, you know? Wow. Poor Chris, trying to be serious and talk about the wow. worship of God. Oh, gosh. All right. I know. Well, Beans. On that topic, let's uh, let's talk about this first line, when the people are gathered. And I think uh, this is an important place uh, to start. Um, now, Father Martis and I, and you did this too, uh, Dennis, we did all these uh, uh, presentations on uh, mystical, mystical body. body mystical body, mystical voice, 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 voice. <laughs> Back when we introduced the, uh, did some catechesis on the uh, new words of the mass. And you remember he'd always, he'd always make this analogy about going down to the hardware store and he wanted to buy like uh, a model airplane. Okay. And he'd get the box with a model airplane and he would look at the site and would say, some assembly required. And this, Darn it. So he would say, all the pieces are gathered together 
in the box. But if you want those pieces to become, you know, a F-14 fighter jet or something like that, there's some assembly required. And this is an analogy to what happens at masses. It's not just a bunch of individual souls together inside the church. They have to be assembled into well, into what? The mystical body of Christ. And so, um, right. So the, and the mystical body isn't just some amorphous, you know, glob of everybody doing everything whenever they want, however they want. Right? There's a certain hierarchical, that is to say priestly, because the mystical body is a priestly body, a hierarchical arrangement of people. And so... Um, and a lot of this has to do with what we've talked about already, about the, the very the different types of ministers that are present, the different vestments that they wear, the different preparation that they undergo, the different location and placement that they occupy in the church. So these aren't insignificant things. This is all about assembling the people into uh, the mystical body. So... That's that's one point. But I think more along spiritual lines is, um, you know, what is it? It's not just sitting in the right spot. Right. And you you'll know this. Uh, does the Weiler family sit in its uh, in the general generally in the same place when you go to mass? I'm going to say no, actually. Yeah? yeah. I know that sounds crazy, but it's it's a little bit different every time. Do you get do you get the stink eye from uh, uh, from a parishioner if you end up sitting in their spot or are you, you're all pretty good? No. You know what? Honestly, kind of the opposite. Everyone loves our kids, so they're like they like to. It's so funny. I'm trying to, you know, don't. It, our kids can be distracting sometimes, and I try not to do. That. I try not to let the kids turn back and smile and wave at everybody. But you mm -hmm. know how it goes. Sure. But no, we, we don't sit at the same sure. spot. But I know what you mean. There have been times in my life where, you know, third pew to the left, sit in the same one. You know. Yep. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of, there's a couple of passages that I think can can help us understand this, how to assemble and how when the people are gathered. Uh, the one uh, I was reminded of this that uh, we were praying at uh, Formation Week, and this is on Saturday, the third week uh, in the uh, in the Psalter. It's this uh, passage from the Philippians about humbly regard others as more important than yourselves, each looking out not for his own interests, but also everyone uh, for those of others. Do everything without grumbling or questioning. And I'm glad you're having a good experience at your parish, Jesse. <laughs> but I think that may not be universal, that in many places uh, there's grumbling and questioning and, uh, well, it's not just sometimes there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from. <laughs> this is true. So, but I mean, this is, um, this is not like assembling for, you know, the bears game or assembling, uh, you know, at uh, black Friday sale at Walmart or assembling a dresser from Ikea. Exactly. This is a different type of assembling that requires a great deal of humility and, uh, uh, selflessness. Um, there's uh, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show before, but there's this famous letter from Romano Gardini that he wrote in 1964 about the essence of the liturgical act. Did we talk about this. Is modern man capable of doing yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah we've talked one. about that, but it was a long time ago. OK, well, one of the things that he says makes uh, modern man incapable of the liturgical act is he has no communal sense that we've had this type of individualism drilled into us. Uh, from a very early age and that, it, hey, it's about me. 
And so what he says in that letter is that uh, much that divides men must be overcome. Dislikes, indifferent towards the many who are no concern of mine, but who are really members of the same body, lethargy. In the act, the individual becomes conscious of the meaning of the words congregation and church. And so this is another thing that, uh, again, like we've said before, um, you're going to have a beautiful church, beautiful vestments, a well-trained pastor and a great musicians and all the rest. But if you have a bunch of individuals who refuse to be a gathered and assembled into the mystical body of Christ because I hate that guy or, you know, she sings off key all the time or they're sitting in my pew, then, you know, you know, God, God is so powerful, but he's powerless to save people who don't want to be saved. And I think part of that is uh, this docility that we should have. So anyway. And also unity and worship. I mean, the church documents often express unity and worship as a really important thing. Yes, that's what I was just about to jump in there in the cat in the general yes. instruction at the very beginning. Good segue, Jesse. It says the purpose of all these rites at the beginning, the walking, the bending, bowing, the singing, is to ensure that the faithful who come together as one, right, one mystical body, establish communion and dispose themselves to listen to the word of God and celebrate the Eucharist. So you're not just running off the street, get your Eucharist and go home, right? You have to sit down, slow down, listen. As the priest comes in, everybody's attention is focused on that procession. They see him bow, then they know what the altar is, what they're about to do. And so um, this is part of the preparation. It says a beginning, an introduction, and a preparation is what this is all about. Now, have either of you or anybody out there, have you ever heard this from, I don't know, the pulpit? You know, this type of mentality or disposition that each individual ought to have in the church? I, I can't remember a time that I have, actually. Only from you, Chris. Maybe maybe in one of our L.I. liturgies. We, <laughs> yeah. You know, but. yeah, I mean, we've been told we're supposed to love each other and all that and everything like that. But, uh, I mean, you know, there's all these, like, parish rebuilding programs and things like that. But, I mean, uh, and I think the authors of those know that. But kind of a fundamental thing is that part of the agreement that if, if you want your parish to thrive, you kind of have to check your grievances and your hurts and your individuality to a certain degree. You don't become anonymous when you walk in the church, but a lot of that has to be sort of left behind. And um, until that happens, again, I don't, you know, it, it, the, the 1962 missile won't work and the 2011 missile won't work. Those books are powerless to overcome certain things. You know, and actually this is, I hope not too much of a tangent. You know, I think that, um, you know, in some ways, priests and parishes who celebrate the Novus Ordo liturgy well would, if they were forced to celebrate the 1962 Missal well. And those who don't do it well wouldn't celebrate any better with the 1962 Missal. So, so sometimes the, the, you know, the thinking, if we just change the books, you know, that this this would solve the problems. I think that's that's just that's not true. There, it, it, it's not irrelevant, but it's not uh, the solution to the problems. And so that's a very good point. And I'm mm -hmm. going to lock that away mm -hmm. in my brain. That's yeah. really awesome. Yeah. Monsignor yeah. Mannion used to say that all the time in the early days of the liturgical institute. We didn't need new translations. We need a new approach mm -hmm. to using the thing. The translations help, but they don't do it by yeah. themselves. And you know, you do feel this a little bit in parishes where they want everybody to feel included. Turn to your left, turn to your right, introduce yourself or cantors who open mass by saying, as we start our celebration, please open your hymnal to page whatever. 
not in the missile, not necessary, a little bit distracting. What the church gives us to form this unity, entrance rite, procession, entrance chant, and that's how everybody is doing the same thing and putting the words of Christ on their lips rather than just merely saying hello to their neighbor, which is not bad, but it's not the same as assembling as the mystical body. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I was going to, you know, related to that, Dennis, I ask an architectural question. I mean, is there a certain type of, not just turn to your right, turn to your left and whatnot, is there a certain type of seating arrangement or church floor plan that facilitates or doesn't this type of ecclesial communion? Well, I think that the church has to be altar focused or altar dominant. So in the 50s, they would have some keystone shaped churches that were wider in the um, front and the back so that more people would sit up close. But they were always looking at the altar. Even sometimes in the early 60s, you have semicircle churches, half circles, but everybody was focused on the altar. In the 70s, they got this idea that people had to see each other as well as the altar. And sometimes you'd be looking right into the ear of the person <laughs> next to you. Crazy kind of stuff because they're saying, well, people are members of the mystical body and you should see them too. But actually it's the altar that's the point of unity, right? So everybody should be looking at the head and then know that they, they are members. And so my sense is, you know, the longitudinal church does that well, but I'm a little, you know, open-minded that anything that's altar focused and keeps the altar at the head of the body can work. I'm having flashbacks to our choir location episode. Oh, yeah. Did we oh, do right. one of those? Yeah. We, yeah. Jesse oh, put us good. in a fight in this corner. Oh, Chris, well, the well, idiot in this corner. Dennis, the smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> we recorded yeah. those on your farm. Oh, that was the really? fir first mm -hmm. of the farm sessions. Yeah. Ah, nice. But, you know, it's it's like you were saying before, Dennis, the, the, the unity and the gathering and the assembly that the baptized have when they come to Mass is... Uh, brought about through Christ, who is kind of stand, who's kind of the beating heart of the assembly as represented by the altar. And so the communion that we have with each other is not some superficial, merely human thing. It's brought about by this focus on the altar. So, right. And you can see in the general instruction, right at the very beginning, it says these rites that precede the liturgy of the word, that's the entrance, the greeting, penitential act, the curia, and the gloria, and the collect. They all have the character of being an introduction and preparation. Why? Because we all need to say, Lord, have mercy. We all sing glory to God in the highest and it establishes who we are in relation to God. And then you all know who you are and then you can sit and hear their readings. Yeah. Well, I mean, this this uh, series of podcasts might go into season seven if we don't go faster. But I think this was an important <laughs> okay. thing. So far, we've got through when the people are gathered <laughs> uh, from door to one. But it's it's uh, I think until people know this, uh, then it's just, you know, the missile is, is, is not going to have the fruitfulness that it otherwise could. So. And just right. to extend us further into season seven, I learned this, and I've said it before in the podcast, I learned this from Father Larry Hennessy at Mundelein. Why do we pray at the beginning of Mass in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? It's really strange because we don't pray in the name of the Father usually. We pray in the name of the Son. So why would you start Mass with in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Do you remember? That's because that's how we're baptized. Right. So in other words... I am reminding myself and or activating, however you want to put it, the fact that I've been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the head of that body, the priest, is saying that again. And we say, yes, you know, amen, is so be it. Yes, it is so. And so that's the bond, right? We have all been grafted onto the body of Christ through baptism. And the words that did it are the first words that we say. 
that's one of the things that kind of ruined me. You know, you learn something and it ruins you. Like now I'll hear somebody start praying and they go, okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I'm just like, ah! <laughs> I know, I know. But there's, there's a lot there. That's it's, why. It's, it's more than a bookend. All right, Chris, back to you. Well, I think uh, that's probably good for now. Why don't we wrap that up for, for this time? And we'll go back to order of mass All number right, one so we'll next do, time. We'll do a question and back to Chris then. Yeah. <laughs> Questions. Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. This week, we have a question from Tony. Tony says, hello, liturgy guys. Hello, Tony. Hey, Tony, you must be one of my people from New York. (laughs) Tony says, I come from a more canonical background working at a diocesan tribunal. In the canonical tradition, we see liturgy law as law on equal footing with the code legally speaking. But because, uh, because Cardinal Gaspari's decisions in compelling the 1917 code, it was left aside and canonists generally leave it in its own corner. Uh, my question is about principles governing questions in liturgical matters. And he says, regarding liturgical norms, uh, when, when people have questions regarding liturgical norms and liturgical books themselves, there seems to be much more of an impulse to make up an answer on the spot rather than consult the tradition. Why is that? And more importantly, is that a legitimate way of resolving those questions in the liturgical realm? Hmm. Interesting. And a lot of stuff there. Now, I know, Chris, neither you nor I are legal specialists in this, I guess. But I do remember hearing Liturgical Institute Professor Monsignor Robert Dempsey, priest of Chicago, who got his doctorate or his licentious, I guess, at San Anselmo in, in Rome, say that, um, oh, actually got his doctorate at the University of Holy Cross in Rome, that liturgical law is actually law and therefore is binding on people. We tend to think of liturgical law as suggestions, but where law is law, they give options and so on, but you are bound to it under pain of sin, he said, uh, to follow the law. Now, I guess our questioner's question is, what if the law is ambiguous? Is that what I'm, is that what I'm getting there from, from that, Chris? Yeah, I think the, the line that comes to mind is, um, to my mind, is in, it's in number six of the general instruction uh, of the Roman Missal, where it uh, speaks about the two Roman missals, the one of Trent and the one uh, subsequent to the Second Vatican Council. Although four years have intervened, embrace one in the same tradition. So if that's true, obviously people debate about this. I happen to think it's true that the the rubrics and the, the liturgical laws, whether they're in the rubrics or in instructions or uh, introductions, whatever they are, is those already are, for the most part, written according to tradition. And I think if a particular law or rubric or instruction can answer a question, then its answer is, in many ways, traditional. Uh, Now, it's accounting for circumstances of modern times and stuff as well. But I think uh, one word I think that maybe Tony used, should one um, uh, rush to to find an answer? I, I don't know. I no, I, I think that any answer ought to be done according to the books, according to tradition and all the other instructions. So call your office of worship director first. Yeah, well, get hopefully that's the type of answer you would get and not, you know, opinions or interpretations according to your liturgy director's uh, likes. But 
Um, no, I, I, I think if you, if you base decisions off of liturgical law and not likes or dislikes, it, uh, it will be uh, determined according to the tradition, I, I would think. And if there are ambiguities, you say, okay, well, what seems likely? Well, we know the previous missile said it this way, and so this is probably the intention. And if you really don't know, you ask your diocesan worship office, the bishop, and then I, ultimately, I guess you could send a dubium to the Congregation for Divine Worship and say, hey, this is not clear. Can you come down with a decision for us and hopefully get one? Yeah. And presumably, it would be according to, the, her, to a hermeneutic, I suppose. Although there are new laws and new circumstances that, uh, that, that, that may arise, but hopefully those, the, the, there's a, a context and a history from which uh, the church would draw in her liturgy to answer it. And if the server's asking you two minutes before Mass and you have to make a decision, I would say the safer choice is as the tradition has always done it. But then you never know. Maybe there's something new and you can ask and get clarification. It's like taking a case to the Supreme Court. Like someone has to be the decider of the proper interpretation of the Constitution. So Congregation for Divine Worship ultimately would be the, the definitive uh, determination of how to interpret liturgical law. How's that, Jesse? All right. Tony, I... I hope that answers your question. And uh, if you have a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys, or you can parlay Dennis. DMAX Supertaster at parlor.com <laughs> or come to Addison, Kansas and look for me. If you're not, if you're not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe those are the only people that will actually do that, Dennis. <laughs> All right. I take it back. Right, thank you. And God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by Adoremus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.